Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 270, and today's guest is Nathan Beckard, founder and CEO of Foundersuite. It's always great to speak with a fellow podcaster, as Nathan is the host of How I Raised It. He interviews founders of startups and dissects the details on how they raised each round of funding. It's a great podcast that I definitely recommend, and as I dug into his archives, I suddenly realized that we've been podcasting for about the same length of time and almost have the same number of episodes, which I thought was really cool. Nathan's podcast, it makes a lot of sense based on his company, as Foundersuite is the leading platform for raising capital used by thousands of startups, VCs, accelerators, and investment bankers around the world. Companies using the platform have raised over $3 billion in seed and venture capital. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like more of the details on his podcast, including his experience running one and some of his biggest takeaways, his career path coming out of school, and his decision to get his MBA at the Macomb School of Business at UT Austin, what led him down the path of starting Founder Suite, and all the details on the company, plus a look at its key features, the most common mistakes that founders make when raising capital, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then what are you doing to build up your company's employment brand? If you don't have a content strategy to support that, then it is very likely that you are just flying under the radar. The good news is that VentureFizz can help. A subscription to VentureFizz includes a content playbook for sharing all the details on your company, people, and culture. We leverage all formats of storytelling to include videos, podcasting, employee profiles, and so much more. Reach out to info at VentureFizz.com to get all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Nathan. Nathan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited. Likewise, I'm excited to you because um, we both have a podcast. <laughs> and when I looked at your archives, I'm like, man, I think we started podcasting around the same time frame, the 2017, 2018. We have almost the same amount of episodes, uh, which is, you know, in that 250 plus category, which um, I see a lot of people experimenting with podcasts and they have lots of ambition and they want to do it yet. They kind of fall off the train after a while. They'll get to episode, I don't know, probably like 20 or 30 and be like, I can't keep up with this, whether it's finding guests or they don't see the value in it. So I want to talk to you about your experience and it's called how I raised it, by the way. Um, and everyone needs to check it out. I checked out lots of episodes and they're amazing. So talk about your experience of why you started this podcast, kind of what the format is and why do you keep up with it? Yeah. So we do about once a year, usually around new year's Eve ish. I put it out to my small little marketing team that we should try some new marketing experiment. It could be, you know, anything it could be some Reddit ads. It could be some skywriting. Uh, it could be banners of a hot air balloon. It doesn't matter what it is. Like we just need to try something new every year just to kind of, you know, mix things up. And around that time, a couple of years ago, um, I decided let's try a podcast. Why not? What's the harm? Doesn't cost much to do it. And so started it and I immediately like fell in love with it. I think I do it almost as much or maybe more just for my own kind of entertainment and enjoyment of learning from lots of smart people uh, as, as it is as a marketing channel or anything else. Right. Um, but it wasn't in, originally intended as kind of a new marketing experiment. And, you know, I'm sure you appreciate this too. Like it, having a podcast, especially one with a little bit of a track record gives you a calling card to basically reach out to, almost anyone um our show and this is i'm getting to a point here our show is about raising capital and we have a whole system you know for running the show which happy to get into but one of the little systems is i've i kind of scan the daily uh newsletters like strictly vc and and i look for companies that get funded and then i have uh, another team that looks up the ceo and the email address of the ceo well, anyway, I got a list, a new list yesterday, and that's what we use for our outreach to to find new guests. And I got a new list yesterday, and there was one company on there called Terra Power, Terra Power. And I see the CEO, it's Bill Gates, and it's got Bill Gates' email. I'm like, hmm, should I, should I pull the trigger yeah. and reach out to Bill Gates? I mean, granted, 
odds are one in 10,000 that he's going to even respond. But like, my point is, it's kind of fun to have a show. Doesn't cost much to get going. And, you know, I've had some other big names, not as big as Bill Gates, but, you know, it gives Mm -hmm. you a, a way to reach out to some pretty fun, interesting, smart people. I think you hit a key element. Like you, you gotta like love it, and that same thing with me. Like the entrepreneurial journey, I have always loved. I mean, I, ooh, I would have to look it up, but I remember having like an MP3 player hooked up to my car, you know, street, you know, basically streaming through the 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 radio through the cassette. Did you have a cassette player? That I think I had the cassette the, one too. Absolutely, to your, yeah. I used to consume tons and tons of content to the point where I'm like, I should just do this. And I did. And that's why I keep up with it because I just love the entrepreneurial journey. So it's not like a, oh, I got to go do a podcast. It's like, I just find every single conversation fascinating. So yeah. Awesome. Let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? So I grew up in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I like to think this was all a big predestined thing but i was pretty entrepreneurial as a kid always had lots of side hustles and i would go beyond your lemonade stand into some more exotic uh kid side hustles like um i've told this story before but like i would arbitrage the fact that my parents were pretty tolerant and loose in their parenting and so i would order you know Chinese throwing stars and nunchucks and blow guns, blow dart guns off of out of the back of Kung Fu magazine and then like sell them to kids whose parents were much more restrictive, right? So kind of built a little trade in semi-legal um, you know, throwing stars, which I don't even know if they're legal anymore, but <laughs> they were at the time. Um, yeah, so I always had some little scam like that. Not scam, some little business, some little entrepreneurial hustle going. Um, but uh, but then you know, I thought I wanted to be a, a finance guy. I, I don't know if it was the movie Wall Street or something else that sort of like attracted me to that world. But, you know, kind of took a little detour after college into into finance, investment banking, but really With kind of Arthur identify. Anderson. What's that? Arthur Anderson, great firm. Yeah, well, you know, you're getting out of college and I feel like today is actually much easier to become an entrepreneur than when I was graduating. So when I graduated, I actually, and, and so you're graduating college, you've got some, some debt. I want to move up to San Francisco, you know, which is not a cheap place to live even back when I graduated. Um, and so, you know, we gravitate towards these uh, steady jobs, which seem steady. Arthur Anderson was a hundred thousand person firm, hundred thousand plus, hundred thousand plus people worked at Arthur Anderson when I worked there. It no longer exists. So there is no such thing as a steady, um, necessarily a steady, safe job. But even there at Arthur Anderson, when I was doing valuation services, which is like valuing companies for M&A work and stuff like that, I remember hand drawing like a, a, a little business card for this idea, a little side hustle called Creative Web Solutions and like using Arthur Anderson's, you know, printing resources to like print out business cards for this site. So probably <laughs> completely against corporate rules and um, all that stuff. But like even trying to like hustle something entrepreneurial inside, even while working at the world's largest accounting professional services firms. <laughs> it's great foundation experience though. I mean, you do learn a lot in those firms. Like I, so another commonality, I went, I worked at KPMG for two oh, years. Oh, sure. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, now, but you went to back to B school. So you went to UT Austin. So what did, what did you learn there? Yeah. So a couple of years working in, in corporate world. And I agree with you. I think those firms, I, I don't mean to diss them. KPMG and Arthur Anderson and those mm-hmm. similar firms are great places to start a career. You know, they, they recruit and hire tons of young people right out of college. So it's actually a pretty fun place to work. You're working with you know, tons of other 20 somethings, you get a lot of exposure into like one of my managers, this guy named Ed Murray. Like I learned how to sell simply by sitting in a room where he would be pitching a hundred thousand dollar deal to a client. And the way he just did it with confidence and poise and without blinking an eye when our fee was probably higher than KPMG's fee, right? You know, I mean, it was like yeah. a crazy thing. Like mm-hmm. you pick up a lot of stuff. So I definitely don't want to diss that environment. But anyway, you know, wanted to follow that track of like, all right, let's 
let's go get the MBA, which was kind of a little bit more common path. You know, you go work for three or four years, go get an MBA, and then then start your real career. Um, that was kind of the model at the time. Um, and UT, you know, in Austin was cool even back then, right? It was it's always been a cool town. It's always been a cool school, and Austin's always had a pretty good entrepreneurial vibe. And the reason I chose Austin was like, okay, this town is kind of like Boulder. It's kind of weird and funky. Um, like Boulder, Colorado was. Um, it's also got a really on, good entrepreneurial scene. Let, let's go get an MBA there. And and that was great. That was also just good to like build some fundamental skills, like how to build a financial model, how to build a marketing plan, you know, stuff like that, how to how to do accounting, right? Um, the one thing they don't really teach you in business school is like how to sell, which I think is so critical. And, you know, we could talk about that, but um, I think just some of those core like fundamental skills accounting and finance and stuff like that is really the good takeaway from from going to business school so yeah and one of the better like entrepreneurial mba programs like one of the top yeah well and the fun thing and i think they still do this the fun thing at the time is they were kind of a pioneer in these business plan competitions right and mm -hmm. and so that means you would get a couple of students you would hopefully actually not just do it academically, but actually try and start something. You would write a business plan, you put together a pitch, and then you would go compete on stage in front of like VC judges. Sometimes there were cash prizes, but in our second year or my second year of business school, I went on the business plan circuit and went and pitched at um, uh, Emory University and Rice University in Houston and University of New Orleans. And we went to New York and pitched at, um, I think, Stern or maybe it was NYU, but anyway, we went up pitched in New York and like you go and you're meeting all these other students also, you know, kind of hustling, um, really, really fun way to like dabble in starting a business without jumping all the way into starting a business. So that was definitely fun. Yeah. Very cool. So what'd you do after? So I actually did try and start a business in business school. We, mm -hmm. as part of that whole business plan competition, I was able to negotiate a license to some software for clinical clinical trial software, um, you know, the software to manage clinical trials that had been built by MD Anderson Cancer Center, a big hospital uh, chain in, in Texas. Got the license for this and wrote the business plan and pitch deck and marketing strategy and all this stuff. Did the business plan competition, but also actually met with investors really trying to raise money for this company that we started called Trial Logic, and pretty much hustled the entire second year of business school. Business school is a two-year program typically. Hustled the entire second year trying to get this thing off the ground. And when we really got into it, like this code, the software had been written over like two or three decades, and it was just not something that we could actually rip out of MD Anderson Cancer Center and mm -hmm. commercialize. So, <laughs> for so better written or for worse, like mumps. Yeah, like it's probably <laughs> written in like COBOL and I don't even know what, you know, super old school stuff. And so we basically like realized at some point as the year is ending, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to become a, a business. Um, and at the meantime, I had kind of missed all the on-campus recruiting, which happens a lot in the fall where the big companies come and, you know, hire, hire people. And so I basically graduated in June. Uh like having no, no job and no startup. And so I moved back out to San Francisco. I'm like, well, what do I know how to do? I know how to build financial models. I know how to build pitch decks. I know how to pitch startups. And so I just hung out a shingle as a consultant um, in the Bay Area, San Francisco, and started helping startups do that work. Kind of the wingman, wingman to the startup CEO or the fractional CFO is another phrase to kind of describe that. But just helping, you know, that, the two or three person uh, startup with their finances and building investor lists. Um, I put it all in a fancy spreadsheet to track all the investor conversations, uh, help them refine their pitch deck, build a financial model, all that stuff. And then for some of them, we'd go out and help them. I would go sit in on the pitch meetings with them at Excel or Kleiner or Sequoia or whoever, and kind of be the, the wingman there. So did that for like a decade while trying to think of my next big idea. 
So at what point did you, because I mean, that sounds like that was the foundation of realizing there needs to be software to automate this process, but was there an interim step kind of before we get into Founder Suite or? So the, it's almost sort of embarrassing because the whole time I was doing this consulting, I'm thinking, I just want to start my own startup. What should I do? And I was thinking of all kinds of crazy ideas mostly dumb ideas and I did it for like a decade without coming up with anything good and then one day this little tiny light bulb finally went off it's like why don't I actually build some tools and software for raising capital it's what I'm doing it's a very inefficient process these spreadsheets that I'm building for the clients get really messy really quickly like why don't we turn that into software instead of a an excel sheet and so it was like this little light bulb that finally went off after 10 years. <laughs> the, the idea was basically sitting right underneath my nose that whole time and just didn't go there. So, so, you know, to connect the dots, we started it as a little side project mm-hmm. um, and, and built an MVP and it was really terrible and crappy, but people at least liked the idea of what we were doing. And eventually that led to, you know, where we are today, Founders Week. Because at the time, there really wasn't anything to help you manage the process. Um, so that MVP initially, like what, what did that look like? Well, so sometimes I, I leave this little part out. The MVP was actually not just focused on fundraising. Actually, the MVP was let's build tools for kind of the whole founder journey. And so... We had an idea validation tool in there to Hmm. sketch out an idea and get feedback on it. We had a investor CRM to manage a pipeline of investors. We had a media CRM to kind of manage like media relations. Uh, What else did we have in there? We had um, a competitive tracker and then we had like an investor update or metrics tool. So it was actually a bunch of tools in there in the first MVP. And then once we put that out there, we realized like people aren't really using all of them. And like our media tracker tool, I've never really been in PR or media. So it was a crappy tool because I didn't really have the insight to put into that tool. So long story short, we killed off most of the, the features and products and really focused in on that investor CRM as our like starting point and then since then we built a bunch of other stuff all more narrowly focused on fundraising instead of like this broader founder journey as one little anecdote on that too like our original tagline was tools to get startup shit done Mm -hmm. and people loved our tagline it was great for a t-shirt or banner or a booth that you know TechCrunch disrupt but like it didn't really mean anything. Like, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's a fun, clever tagline, but it doesn't mean anything. And now we're much more boring. It's software for raising capital, much more specific, but at least it means something. And we've, you know, actually benefited by being a little more narrow and focused, I'd say. So, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's uh, the founders think too, too cute when they're coming up with their taglines when sometimes it's better to be direct because then it's like when the consumer reads it they're like oh that's what you do i need that right yes exactly (laughs) memorable versus direct i think it's like or hopefully both right if you can be (laughs) both is amazing yes yes so so how did you get people to start using it because how did you get the initial you know sales going so we um you know, I think we're still doing this. We really did experiment with a lot of different things. I had, um, as part of the consulting work, which we've been doing, we were putting on some events. We would put on something called uh, Startup Funding 2.0, where we bring in a panel of investors and, you know, have kind of discussions about like the future of fundraising and also, you know, bring founders up and pitch. And we'd, we'd get a WeWork space and sell it out for 100 people, 200 people. Sometimes I think our biggest one was like 400 people. So we would do these events that would bring in people, you know, to really meet investors and get to know investors. And so that was a good place to like kind of seed the idea. So we'd start off the event. Hello, welcome. You know, we're going to have a great, great event tonight. Glad you're all here. 
By the way, we're launching Founder Suite. You can sign up here. Here's a promo code to get on the the beta list or whatever. Like so, events was the first way to kind of get the market going. Um, you know, I made a few mistakes. We hired a PR firm like in our early months, and that was just the worst money I've ever spent because we didn't have a story really to put together. And PR firms, I think, are used to working with. I don't know. I guess I, maybe I just got the wrong PR firm, but I kind of don't recommend hiring a PR firm if you're very early stage because it just didn't generate much. Um, ran some Google ads, ran some Facebook ads, which we still do a little of. It's not our core channel. Um, and and some word of mouth too, right? Just like putting stuff out on LinkedIn and asking people for feedback, telling them what you're doing. Um, I mean, as an entrepreneur, I think you have to be pretty scrappy and kind of uncover all the avenues, all the, all the channels, right? Um, and how do you do that cheaply? Because you can't just throw money at it. So those are some of the things we got it going on. Yeah. And how'd you figure out like pricing? Because if, you know, depending on the stage of the company, if it's earlier, the earlier the stage, the less capital they have to actually pay for software. And it seems like you're using a freemium model. Yeah, pricing is hard. I know there's lots of, thought and science to it, but I think it's also very much an art, especially at the, the early days. I know you can like, you know, put up multiple uh, A-B testing landing pages and test out different prices. I mean, there's, I know there are ways to approach it scientifically, but I think it's also um, somewhat throw something against the wall, see if people buy it or not. If they're buying it, can you raise the price a little more? Do they stop buying it? You know, <laughs> kind of yeah. a, a bit of a trial and error. We... We originally actually priced it all as an a la carte model. So each of those separate little tools I mentioned were 10, 15 bucks a month each or something. So, you know, we would say, okay, come in, just choose whatever you want. And here's the thing that actually, although that sounds flexible, that is too many choices for people when you, it's like the mm -hmm. cheesecake factory menu, too many choices, <laughs> it's hard to decide. Right. Right. Um, and so they're like, all right, let's go to the other other spectrum let's just make it super simple zero 49 or 69 depending on some feature sets and that basically is all inclusive and we put that out there and it, it seemed to resonate now we haven't raised prices in like six years five years so i think we're probably underpriced and that probably sounds weird um but you also kind of know just based on your your customer base we're selling a startup so we can't be too aggressive they don't have much money. Um, if they're really, really poor, we do have a free plan. If they're a little bit above not poor, you know, we have a $49 a month plan, which is pretty affordable for most folks. And then if they really want to be serious about their fundraising, you know, $69 is is usually pretty palatable. But again, I think we we need to kind of raise the pricing ceiling on that and test higher prices, which we're thinking about doing as we do a big redesign. Um Pricing's hard though. I wish I had like more expertise on it. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. You can't just keep changing your prices all the time either, right? So that's right. too complicated for both engineering and for branding if you're constantly tweaking your prices. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So another element of the platform is the investor database, which I think that's very key. Like, so when I was listening to uh, one of your podcast episodes, it was with the founders of Chief that recently raised capital. And what I thought was really cool about your podcast is you, know, you talk about the business and how they got started, but then you're like, okay, well, let's talk about each round of funding and their seed round because they had connections. They thought this was going to be a layup and they're very blatant in saying it was a mass, you know? And, and, and I think after they raised their a round and they kind of looked back and it was like, we were trying to reach out to a too broad of investors instead of ones that focus on community. And that's where they landed. Their capital is ones that were really tight around community. So that investor database must be something that's very powerful in itself. I think so. Yes. Uh, obviously you're preaching to the choir or, you know, I'm, I'm not unbiased in this, but it's hard to build that target list of investors. I mean, it really, you know, something I talk about a lot is like fundraising being a numbers game. You've got to talk to a lot of investors. So you've got to talk to a lot of, these are contrary advice. You've got to talk to a lot of investors, but the more narrowly focused you can build of a list, the better. You don't want to just talk to 500 
unfocused investors, it's better to talk to 100, 200 narrowly focused investors that do your industry, your your stage, your geography, you know, other criteria as best you can. Now, that's actually pretty hard to, to filter down. We I wish we had a dozen different filter tools, but it's hard when you've got 200,000 investors to really categorize everyone. So we we allow you to filter by type of investor. Are you looking for angels, VC, family offices, private equity, by industry, um, and then by geographic location, and or you can do a keyword search. So at least it starts to kind of narrow down those results. But then, frankly, the reality is you still, as the founder, have to put in some time going through those results and picking out people that are a good fit or or not, right? There's still kind of a pretty manual search process to that. Really, I don't think anyone, even our competitors that cost 20 times what we cost, haven't nailed it where you can just plug in a bunch of criteria and it spits out your perfect list. There's still a pretty healthy dose of like manual research that has to happen. But I think that's a healthy thing too, right? Because again, if you're looking at an investor, seeing what they've invested in in the past, going to their web page, seeing their portfolio, looking at the different partners and decision makers on the team and identifying the right people. That's kind of the level of, of research that you as the founder need to do still. So, yeah. And it is interesting because rounds are so convoluted these days where an A round could be 150 million, which historically was like a growth round Eve or something. So it's just like funding rounds are all over the map these days. So yeah, and it confuses people. I was on a call yesterday with a guy uh, nice guy. And he was telling me about his business and there. I think he said they did 450,000 in revenue last year, and then are going to do like 800,000 this year. And he was debating, are we pre-seed, seed or series A? <laughs> like he didn't know, you know, yeah. which, what to call his round. And it's partly a function of like what your traction is, your revenue, also partly a function of how much you're raising. If you're, you know, raising five, $10 million, you probably don't call out a pre-seed round, right? I mean, there's all these criteria that sort of filter, but it's not an exact science. So, yeah. And what other uh, features come with the platform? Mm -hmm. So the CRM, as I mentioned, is what you would use to manage a pipeline of investors and keep track of all the discussions you're having with each investor, uh, logging the files you sent them, the email exchanges, uh, adding calendar items, stuff like that, right? So it's a CRM to really track all the all the action items that happened during fundraise. That sits on top of that database of 200,000 investors, 212,000. And that's obviously useful to help populate the CRM, to help build a list of prospects or leads for your CRM. Um, in, a, in addition to those tools, we've got a pitch deck hosting tool. This is just like what it sounds like. You upload a pitch deck, send it out through the system. You can then track and see who viewed it, how much time they spent. Um, there's an investor update tool, which would be used to, you know, send a, a monthly or quarterly um, company update to investors. And that's not to get too complicated, but that's something you could use both before getting before raising capital to update and build relationships with investors before raising money and then after you raise money really good thing to start sending those to your new investors so that's the investor update tool um there's email tools for doing follow-ups like if you want to follow up with all 50 people who you sent the deck to but has not responded you could send them an email and it's going to you know look like you sent 50 emails even if it's just one batch um, there's some startup documents like term sheets, cap tables, pitch decks that you can download. And then what am I missing? And then we have a virtual data room. So as you progress with your fundraising and you get into due diligence with investors, you'll want to you know create a data room where you can share like the really confidential information about your business, your intellectual property, your financials, um, all that stuff. And the data room lets you share it with investors and really determine what those investors can do. Like, can they view those docs? Can they print them? Can they download them? Um, and also tracking like what the investors did. So that's that's the platform. It pretty much starts with 
building a list of investors with the database, managing them, communicating them with the email and pitch deck and stuff like that. And then, you know, due diligence and closing it all up. So, <laughs> which, so how many, like, I mean, through the years you've worked with, I'm sure like a, a lot of your customers have raised a lot of capital, I'm assuming. Yeah, we had a summer intern do the research on this. We haven't done this exercise in a couple of years of how much total uh, committed capital uh, customers have have raised. And he added it up and it was like $9.6 or something like that. It was a pretty wow. shocking number. Um, last time we did this a couple of years ago, where it was like $3 billion or something. Right. So Jumped up a butt. <laughs> That's amazing. Kind of cool. Yeah. And like, what's your goal with this? Like, what's the kind of longer term goal for the platform and founder suite? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, there's some there's some big picture visions that I'm thinking about. Like, we already have a couple thousand startups on the platform, so we kind of have half of a marketplace. Like, we we are thinking of some different ways we could open up the other side of that marketplace and maybe let investors, you know, browse or source or find startups on the platform that has challenges to it too. It's not simple as letting investors in. Um, that's one, one thing we're thinking about, but there's also just a lot of other products and, and tools we can build. Like I can easily see the next couple of years, just building out the platform, even in, in greater detail. And that might mean, you know, adding like signature stuff. It could involve some cap table stuff. Um, you know, there's a lot of tools, right? Just to help founders kind of do their job of pre and post funding management, investor management. Um, and one thing I am excited about though, is we're getting pretty close to launching a new version of the site. We're actually spinning out a version of the site that's going to be aimed at investment bankers, venture funds, um, not so much startups, but more like enterprise customers, if you will, like investment bankers helping companies raise capital. So that's that's coming pretty soon. It's going to be kind of fun. Now you have a unique perspective as it relates to uh, understanding how founders raise capital or make mistakes trying to do it uh, from you know your experience throughout your career to helping founders raise capital to your podcast. So there's multiple layers of how you've seen the trials and tribulations, the success. So what are the typical mistakes that you see over and over again that just always continue to happy, but happen, but need to stop? Yeah, it, it's funny. They just do continue. <laughs> you know, it used to be, I'm going to date myself, but back in the, the 90s, 2000s, it was really hard to raise money and there wasn't much information out there about how to do it. Even finding investors was very hard. Back at Arthur Anderson, a million years ago, I would go down to the research library. It was like literally an actual little library. Actual library. <laughs> yeah, like actual library with books. books but I would check out the, it sounds so old school. I feel like a million years old when I say this stuff. But I would check out the Kratz book of venture capitals. It was like a thick book, about five inches thick of, listing like venture capital firms. And it was like a $10,000 a year book that, you know, Arthur Anderson would buy, right? That was how you found investors. And then of course, stuff started moving online and, you know, very different. But anyway, my, my point of this is nowadays it's actually pretty easy to find a lot of information on how to raise capital. There's even podcasts called How I Raised It that will help you with that. But a thousand other things, right? Y Commenter has a lot of really good content on raising capital as do pretty much all the accelerators and, and just a million other blog sites and stuff like that. So, so why are people still making all these same mistakes? I don't know, but here are some of them. Um, I'd say the top one is like just having a bad pitch deck. You really investors, you have to understand the investor mindset. They are getting deals and startups and entrepreneurs coming at them, thrown at them, thrust at them all day long, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. It's coming in their inbox, in their phone. When they go to a conference, they're getting swarmed by founders, right? I mean, investors are just getting 
deal to them. And so their their attention span is actually quite short, right? You've got to make an impression very quickly uh, through your deck, through your elevator pitch, whatever it is. And a lot of founders make the mistake of having a pitch deck that is just really either dry, boring, doesn't have a story arc to it, uh, oftentimes has way too much information, like they're really dense slides. It's not a business plan. A pitch deck should be super high level, like a, a teaser about what you're doing, right? And so I'd say that's very common. Your pitch deck doesn't grab the investor's attention in 30 seconds or less. And, and that's often because it has too much text in it, right? So that's that's a common mistake. Um, another one is kind of what I was mentioning a few minutes ago of founders will go out and just try and pitch everyone who has the word VC or investor in their title. And they don't do the research of figuring out, oh, does this person, does Keith invest in fintech seed stage deals you know oh it turns out he's a medical devices investor yet i'm trying to pitch him for my fintech startup i know that sounds obvious or you know like that you should but founders make that mistake all the time like oh well maybe maybe keith knows someone no he's a medical he's a fin he's a medical devices investor right like you're right. barking up the wrong tree um and i see founders waste a lot of time doing that and it really hurts you especially if you're trying to do like cold a mistake i see some of our users make sometimes is they're trying to do like big cold email blasts to just all the investors and it actually hurts them because investors can detect that immediately that you have not done your homework you are just blindly reaching out and they'll just delete you or flag you and then i've i've had a like two two customers say hey my my email account's blocked and it's because too many investors have, <laughs> you know, flagged them for spamming them, basically right. stuff like that. So there's a few, a few examples. I could go on and on, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now, what do, what do entrepreneurs like? It's almost like, oh, I'm a tech company. I need to go raise capital, and if I don't, I, I, I'm not going to succeed. Where many companies, you know, should be funded through sales or you know bootstrapping and maybe raising a little bit of angel or seed. Uh, not having to get the VC badge of honor, right? So what do entrepreneurs not realize about raising capital from a VC that they should know about ahead of time? I Yeah, I think a big one is you are making a deal, obviously. You're making a deal, you're exchanging equity or shares of your company for the investor's cash but it's beyond just making that deal, that transaction. You're also kind of putting yourself on a on a track for fast growth at any cost, right? I mean, that's the expectation. Investors aren't looking for slow growth businesses. Um, you're also probably putting yourself on a track to raise multiple rounds of capital. I mean, it's pretty. It's not impossible, but it's pretty rare that you know if you're going down the venture capital capital path that you raise one round and you're done. Usually if you get on that path, you're going to be raising like the, the chief ladies, the podcast you listen to, right? They raise their C, then their series A, series B, series C. They raise a lot of money fairly quickly over multiple rounds. And what happens every time you raise capital, right? You are giving up more and more of your company. That dilution comes out of, you know, founders. It comes out of everyone's uh, pie, but I mean, in particular, it comes out of the founder's pie. Um, and as you raise, maybe starting at the series A, sometimes even at the seed round, you will probably get a board of directors and, you know, maybe it's you and then two investors, or, you know, maybe it's you and your co-founder and three investors. But at, at some point, pretty quickly, you will probably lose control of the board, meaning you have a boss, you can get fired, you can get replaced as the CEO. Um, you are no longer in control of your, your business after, call it two rounds of financing. Not everyone really understands that whole deal with the devil they're making when they go out to raise an angel round, right? That <laughs> here's how the rest of the story plays out. Um, so I think that's really good to, to understand 
Um, and then, of course, you know, just getting into weeds on that a little bit more, investors' term sheets can have all kinds of other provisions in there beyond just giving them control of the board. They could have uh, like blocking rights, like where they can basically block an acquisition. And, you know, here's a scenario, right? Some larger firm comes around, wants to buy your company. Um, it would make you rich and you're maybe right. a little tired. It's a home but, run for you as the founder, but it's not a home run for the investor. Right. It, and so they can, you know, either block that or, or make that transaction very difficult to do. And that sucks, right? So there's all kinds of those little things. There's a whole, we can spend an hour talking about all the potential terms like that that could trip you up, but uh, you just know what you're getting into. On the on the other side though, just to make the, the, the case for VCs, you're getting capital so you can grow faster, so you can hire. There's that stamp of credibility, right? Oh, wow. These guys just raised money from Kleiner Perkins. That's a huge stamp, like winner. That's a big winner stamp, right? Um, that helps you with hiring, recruiting. Um, also, many VCs are very, very helpful, um, whether it's providing strategic advice, whether it's you know making introductions to partners, customers, potential hires. I mean, there's a lot of advantages of raising capital too. So I shouldn't make it sound like it's a, an evil thing. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a, there's a balance and act. And it's, you brought up the, the key points that people just need to be aware of. It's, you know, it's just something you need to know and don't go in blind. And there's so many amazing benefits. And that's why businesses continue to raise venture capital because the, the VCs, if you partner up with the right firm is going to be amazing in terms of making intros and sales and hiring and scaling your business and advice. Um, you know, the one thing that I, I hope entrepreneurs are doing more of, but I, it's something that I kind of realize is they don't do their own due diligence on the VC before accepting their capital, right? It's like, they're just like, okay, great. It's a term sheet. It's good terms. Let's go. Instead of, you know, the VCs are doing incredible amount of due diligence on the founder and before they, you know, ultimately make the deal done. The entrepreneur is not always doing the same to understand what they are. You know, when times get rough, that type of question, what, what was the behavior of this VC in those times versus when it's always rainbows and butterflies? Yeah, <laughs> so. that's a great point. And, you know, I think, why does that happen? Right. So you're a founder, you're out there chasing, pitching investors, you're going to get rejected most of the time, probably 90% of the time you're going to get rejected. So and actually I, I use a metric that's 95% of the time you will get rejected. So anyway, you're getting rejected daily, multiple times a day, daily. So when someone finally does show interest and maybe is interested in doing your deal, puts down a term sheet, whatever, a lot of founders get really excited about that. It's really, you know, attractive and you've kind of put on your rose tinted glasses, I guess you could say, um, because you've been rejected 95 times now 96 number 96 is interested so anyway but like i just talked about after about two rounds those investors can fire you they can make your life hell if you're not you know comfortable getting into bed with them it can really get ugly i've seen some ugly stories of just you know founders hating their lives because their investors are really have a different vision for the business than what they have right and so um, you, you already nailed it. I'd say calling up companies that that investor has invested in in the past, ideally not just current portfolio companies, but ones that failed. If you can dig up some of their their failures and call those founders and like what you just said, how did it go? When things were not working out for your business, did these guys support you? Did they get nasty? Did they stop returning your calls? No, they just wrote you off. You know, like how did things go when, when things were bumpy? Uh, and that's what you want to understand. I think that's super helpful. But yeah, so do your due diligence. <laughs> so other than Founder Suite, what are top three apps you can't live without? Well, um, this is... A, too much of an easy one, but I will say intercom. I just love our intercom. It's our customer support chat. It's also great for like tracking and seeing what our users are doing. I can kind of see like, oh, these guys have, you know, this, these 30 people signed up a week ago and they've uh, done 10 web sessions, but they haven't subscribed yet. So it can, it's a great like customer support and a sales app. I have another one just on my phone and it's a super primitive app 
called Wind and Tides, and it I don't think it's been updated since like 1998, but it's I'm a sailor, so this is it tells me the tides, tells me predicted wind, and then it tells me the actual wind speed, so I know when I'm ready to go sailing, what what sail to put up, how much you know sail area to cover, um, and that's my favorite. And then the last one I just can't live without is called Radio Garden. This is going to sound super geeky, but I love live radio. I'm just an old school. I, I mean, sure, I love Spotify and blah, 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 too. But I love live radio. And Radio Garden is, picture a, a globe with dots all over it. And you just, with your mouse, you pick a dot, maybe Berlin, and and it will start playing you instantly the radio station from Berlin. And and you can go and just like surf the world I've, and save ones on my features list. I have like uh, the community radio from like some tiny Irish town. It's really interesting to hear <laughs> what cool. this tiny little Irish town is, it is playing, you know, or I've got like ones from Turkey and India and some, you know. So anyway, I just cannot live without Radio Garden. It's free. I want to send them money. I love this app that much that I want to send them money, even though I don't see any way to do it. So there's uh there's my apps. <laughs> That's very cool. Those are great ones. Uh, how about a, a book recommendation? I'm a terrible reader. Um, I'm going to cheat on this a little bit. The one thing I do sit down and read almost every Sunday evening is I'll have a stack of wall street journals that, accumulated like actual paper <laughs> again so old school but paper newspapers that accumulated over the week and i'll sit down there and usually have a good whiskey or bourbon based cocktail and i'll just kind of read uh wall street journal so it's not always even up to date because some of those might have been from like four days ago but the writing is so good in the wall street journal whether it's about political stuff ukraine war or about you know business and startups like i feel it's the best brain time you can get right and so it's not a book but you know they even have like the book summaries on i think the sunday issue or saturday issue and so i, I can read all the book summaries and feel like i just read several books you know yeah. <laughs> they're really good reviews and stuff so that's my that's my answer a little bit of a cheat nice uh, and you kind of answered this one already, but I'll ask it anyway. So uh, outside of work, what do you like to do? Sailing, you mentioned. Yep. Um, really got three hobbies. Sailing, got a small little boat, 50-year-old boat, um, little sailboat in Sausalito and get out there and get on the bay. It's really fun and challenging. Good therapy for the startup stress. And then you know, behind that or next to that is riding motorcycles, really into motorcycles. I've been riding motorcycles since I was like 10 and uh, still love it. And then my newest addiction is pickleball and uh, the <laughs> sport that's taking over, taking the over world. the world. <laughs> I haven't but, played yet, but obviously it's like, Oh, everyone that plays it falls in love with it. And it's all ages. So it's pretty, pretty amazing what that sport has done. It, you have to be careful because it will suddenly, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm playing two times a week. Oh my gosh, I'm playing four times a week. Oh my gosh, now I'm playing six times a week. Oh my gosh, what, now I'm what, playing why? three hours a like, day. What is it about it that's so addictive? The learning, so you can learn it very quick. You can learn it in 45 minutes, half hour, whatever. And you can get pretty good pretty quick. So unlike tennis or golf or some other, I think, activities you can actually get pretty good in a matter of weeks especially if you've ever had any racquetball or tennis or even ping pong background those people get really good really fast but even without mm -hmm. that normal people can get pretty good pretty fast yet and this is a little bit like sailing too you can learn it pretty quick but to master it can take a lifetime like to get mm -hmm. that really elite and and it's so much fun there's such a uh, it's very social, you know, you're meeting people, we go travel and we'll just go drop in in Hawaii, or I was just in Colorado last week, and I just start dropping in every morning and I have 15 new friends that I now play with. So it's really fun, really social, and just addicting when you can, 
get the perfect little placement shot that you know the other team can't can't get it's really so if i'm my warning to you if you start to play just understand it's going to impact your business your uh (laughs) you know you yeah you have to find the time because you suddenly find yourself playing like two hours a day like five days a week (laughs) yeah like i haven't dabbled because i'm like i finally have gotten to a point where my golf game is actually not embarrassing anymore it's not good but it's not and i'm like i gotta keep that path because i don't want to divert of all the hard work i put into that thing that (laughs) has been you know 32 years in the making to finally get to a reasonable score where you're like not embarrassed so uh but someday i'm sure I'll, i'll jump on the court and yeah i'm sure it's a it's a blast but there you go there you go yeah all right nathan well thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background and of course any entrepreneurs that are listening to this which we have a lots of them go to foundersuite.com to hopefully help you raise capital and manage and streamline the process and uh i mentioned this earlier but the how i raised it podcast is awesome there's such a great library of episodes so that's also a very very useful tool Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Keith. I really appreciate it. Uh, awesome show you have here. I'm super excited about it. And uh, yeah, if any founders are listening, I'm also happy to connect on LinkedIn or whatever. Um, so just reach out. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.